Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Hi, this is Sarah Reeves from New Society Publishers. We are big fans of the Abundant Edge podcast. Oliver's guests talk about so many of the same topics that we publish on, and he talks with a lot of our authors too. We are proud to be a sponsor of this podcast that is doing such valuable work spreading the word about how to create a finer future together. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. If you're looking for solutions-oriented books, please visit our online store at newsociety.com, other online retailers, or visit a fine bookstore near you. I welcome back everybody. Today I'm going to kick off a new series focusing on reforestation and agroforestry. Now I've been motivated to return to this subject as it seems to be unusually pressing these days. The wildfires in the western US and the Amazon rainforest are not only destructive to these regions in isolation, they also have major ripple effects across the globe and in our collective resiliency. I've been fortunate enough to work directly with people and organizations through my travels who are working on the front lines of reforestation, and in the next few episodes I'll be sharing interviews with people who represent private land projects, agroforestry pioneering, corporate innovation, NGO initiatives, and more in an attempt to understand the challenges and also the potential of bringing trees back into a landscape either in an attempt to re-establish the native ecology or to adapt it to our economic needs while still addressing the need for wild habitat, species diversity, soil health, and so many other benefits of forest and jungle ecosystems. Given that this is the first episode in the series, I would love to hear from anyone listening if they know of any reforestation or agroforestry projects that I should know about or think that I should highlight here on the podcast. Especially if anyone knows of initiatives in the Iberian Peninsula, Spain, Portugal, Andorra, or throughout the Mediterranean and North Africa. As always, you can send information and feedback to me directly at info at or through the contact page on the website at AbundantEdge.com. So let's get started. So back in May of this year, I was backpacking through southern Mexico. I learned about Teuapa Farms in Jico, Veracruz, and reached out to them to volunteer for a short time and get to know their project and help out. I spent just over a week with them and was amazed at how they had transformed the land that they had purchased only about 15 years ago from degraded pasture land into a young native cloud forest. Jairo Rodriguez, the co-owner and manager along with his family, sat down with me on a visit up to their land to talk about how they got started. In this interview, we talked about the urgent need for protection in the quickly dwindling areas of remaining cloud forest in Mexico and around the world. Jairo has a very strong worldview and philosophy that guides his investments in time and energy and the enterprises that he runs. I had the pleasure of learning how they make yogurt, cheese, ice cream, chocolate, and many other artisanal products from their farm and the producers around them. But even more importantly, how they use those to build community even more than to generate profit. Jairo also owns a company that makes high-quality tents designed to last a long time and have a light footprint on the land so people can live comfortably in nature without leaving a scarring impact. In general, I left the place inspired by the potential of what a few people can do with the right motivation and how humans have the power to do as much to heal the land they interact with 
as they do to damage it when their hearts are in the right place. As a short preview of my time in Hiko and Teoapa Farms, I also made a short video with Gyro, which I'm releasing today to accompany this interview. I really encourage you to see the incredible forest that Gyro has helped to create. You can find the video in the show notes for this episode, where you'll also find information on how to contact Teoapa and help contribute to their reforestation goals. So now I'll hand things over to Gyro. All right, so Gyro, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Well, be with us. I'm actually staying at your place. You've hosted me now for almost a week, and I've had an amazing time here just outside of Hico in Veracruz, Mexico. How's your day going? I'm doing well. It's a very nice day. It's not too hot. The clouds seem like it might rain a little bit, so that's a good thing. It is, yeah. We're in a wonderful season this time of year. So there's a ton of material that I'd love to cover with you, especially about reforestation and all the things that you've been teaching me and sort of showing me in the time that I've been here. But to get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your personal background, how you got or sort of how you grew up um, between Mexico and the United States and what got you back into working on the land? Right. Well, I grew up mostly in Mexico City up till I was about 16. I ran my own business at that time. I was uh, delivering vegetables and fruits to the moms of my friends. And at some point, my dad, he had a a big ranch, a cattle ranch near Acayucan in the state of Veracruz. And he he suggested to plant uh, Chile as a business uh, venture and had a little bit of money saved up. And I saw the numbers and was quite excited about the possibilities. I knew nothing about growing crops. But I, I guess because I didn't know anything, I thought it was a, good, a great idea. And so I went and did it. I lost all my savings promptly, but I traded that for a love of the land. It uh, changed my life. I didn't go back to Mexico City after that. I just gained a different perspective of the world. And uh, yeah, the city didn't attract me after after living like that. Um, we started a program of reforestation on my dad's farm back then mostly allowing the natural vegetation to grow, starting with the repairing areas near the river and all the springs and reducing somewhat the impact of the cattle in this property. It was uh, quite big back then. He was um, partner with my uncle. It was about 700 acres. So, so it was a good amount of, of property to to keep uh, trees growing in. After that time, I moved to the to the states. Um, I had an opportunity to move. My mom had naturalized, and she offered me to help me immigrate. And I tried that out for a couple of years, but I never the the love for the land never left me. So I ended up going back to my dad's farm, and. Uh, at that point, I went in business with a friend and we took a course of organic farming just by chance. We found somebody else on the street and I was telling them what I was doing. And she's like, well, guess what? There's a organic farming course. Why don't you go and check that out? And so we did. And it hooked us into organic. That was the, the first time I started getting into organic. Um, we did much better in that crop 
it was also chilly and uh it completely changed my my view of of growing crops and of taking care of the land we were doing composts at an industrial level with tractors and machines and we're using compost to fertilize the ground for the chili plants we also were growing at the dry season which made it a lot more challenging and we were using uh, motors to pump water and whatnot and um, we had problems with the motors and the whole crop failed because of that but the previous results were obviously much better than my 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 um, attempt before that. And so I kept going with this because I'm pretty stubborn and kept going with the organic farming of chili. And I started diversifying also. We started making cheese at my dad's farm back then and offering it as a product. And uh, the third trial for the chili was way more successful. We were... Uh, more experienced with the organic aspect of, of the farming and uh, we minimized the problems we had with uh, bugs which had been a big issue at the first uh, crop the conventional crop and this time we had minimal problems with bugs which is a big issue in the tropics we also changed our watering system to flooding and uh, that also helped because uh, it was simpler it was just uh, simpler technology. Fewer things to go wrong, huh? Totally, totally. Uh, the, the least technology one requires, in my experience, the more reliable the system is. Once you uh, make it more complex with technology, number one, there's things that are going to go wrong that you cannot fix. And if it's some crucial system like the watering system, then your whole crop can fail within days. And that was my experience at that point. Is one point of failure. Well, if you don't have redundancy, then that can do you in. So let's switch gears a little bit now and tell me about how you came to acquire the land that we're sitting on at the moment and how you got the vision to reforest this parcel. Well, specifically after we moved to Hikomi and my family, um, we got together with some friends that uh, we had known in uh, an environmental movement uh, we there used to be campouts and and sweat lodges and workshops um, all focused in in environment and when we moved to hiko we met with them and uh, we had this idea of buying land together and so we started looking uh, people were offering me land constantly and uh, we found uh, pretty good sized property and a very affordable price. Here's what we see in the background over there. That's uh, that forest that we see back there. It used to be a pasture not more than 15 years ago. Yeah, I've seen the pictures from when you first bought it. How long ago was that? That must have been, yeah, about 13, about 13 years ago, I would say. Yeah, and it was almost entirely barren from the from the videos that I could see. And uh, I'll put pictures on the podcast uh, so that people can see the scenery behind you. But it's a very lush forest right now. Now, certainly it's young. 13 years is not enough time for a lot of the more mature trees to get established. But it's still a huge transformation from sort of a barren grassland that must have taken 
just an immense amount of energy to maintain at that state because we're in an environment that desperately wants to go back to forest. That's right. In fact, the grass areas have become minimal. There's a few pasture areas in, in that property. Everything turned to forest, everything else. There's a lot of water. There's several springs and a stream that runs through it. And uh, the forest just grew back. We let it be. We stopped uh, putting cows in there because they used to have cows previously. And the forest just basically grew back again in a very quick manner. Very impressive. Now, some of the forest you see is a subsequent purchase of property by a family of one of the partners in the in the original purchase and they were very impressed at the growth of the forest in, in that original purchase so much so that they decided to buy the adjacent property and it was totally pasture i remember well when they went to visit they had just finished chopping everything it was a few big trees here and there of course but that was it and as you can see it, it just grew back and that part of the forest is younger yet than the original property that was purchased. It's amazing to think looking at it now that this is going to be much larger and more lush in just another handful of years and that each step of sequential growth and maturation of the system is going to bring in a whole another variety of life and diversity to this area. What other than just kind of neglecting the areas and allowing them to grow back as they naturally would would you tell someone who's trying to reforest a property of their own? Now, obviously, the climate and the variables where they live are going to determine a lot of what's going to work there. But what have you found uh, has helped this go back to its its original state or its its level of health? I must say the one factor that I may, has made the biggest difference it's in its inaccessibility. You have to walk. It's not truly inaccessible. You have to walk about half hour from the road to get there and i must say that probably is what has made the most difference because people just don't mess with it there's a few locals that might go in and hunt or take some wood you know but it's truly minimal it's just not enough people around here that have enough energy to go and mess with it and as for the or the the owners uh the the ones that we purchased the property originally our main focus was conservation from the beginning. It's something we we talked about and we agreed on. That's the the most important focus of purchasing that property. It's just let it grow, let the forest grow. We planted a, a few trees here and there, but uh, the one suggestion I could make or the one different thing I would make, I would probably plant more forestry trees very focused in uh, subsequent um, uh, harvest and definitely I would have reintroduced more of the endangered species. Now we planted some fruit trees uh, quite a way from the beginning and uh, they were not successful. They just didn't get the care they were required like in terms of manuring or pruning or protecting them from uh, foraging animals. And I realized that nature knows what to do to heal itself. 
And in terms of reforestation in this region specifically, I don't think there's a more effective way or inexpensive at it than letting it be and letting it do itself. Yes, reintroduce some trees that you're interested in, especially if you want to harvest eventually, but that's about it. Now, let's start from the beginning about how you started or you're still in the formation process of an organization where you're bringing in yourself and multiple friends uh, and collaborators here in the valley in order to expand this reforestation project. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, precisely. Uh, When the group, the original purchasers of that property got together, we're all acquaintances and friends and we had a common vision and we basically started to put that common vision into paper. We started writing down our agreements. What did we agree on? And we would get together as uh, podlocks and we had food. We did sweat lodges sometimes and we would just talk, you know, and we'd come with ideas. And once we all agreed on an idea, we just write it down. We dated it and we read it, wrote it down and, and wrote down who was present at that meeting. And we kept that going for years. At some point, they became more formal and we followed a protocol that was thanks to somebody that was experienced on, on uh, doing this type of things. And we decided that we would form a nonprofit organization to uh, transfer the property title to we figured that eventually we any of us could die and we're all gonna die and we wanted to make sure that there was not going to be future problems with uh with inheritance and people becoming involved that wouldn't have the same focus as as the as the original owners so we did uh, form this nonprofit. it took us years of hacking at the bylaws because uh, they know anything about it. And we gathered uh, the, the bylaws of different nonprofits that were similar or they had a similar um, uh, focus as ours. And we started taking ideas from some of them in putting our ideas, especially we transferred uh, the reality of how we organized one of the key points was uh, decisions by consensus and made by a council. We decided on two levels of membership in the nonprofit. The one level we call it active members are the people that are in this region and that are able to attend the meetings, the meetings where the decisions get made. So in order to become an active member, you got to show up to six months of meetings basically to make sure that, that that you're available and that you are involved in the project and the, the the active members they have a right to vote on decisions and of course the obligation to show up and then we have a different level of membership which we call it honorary members and that's the member, the people that are also involved in the original land purchase, but that are not within the region and that cannot be directly involved at the meetings. We have a protocol, a specific protocol that allows at least a week 
between the proposal of a decision and the actual voting for the decision, which gives time for the honorary members that are not present to cast their opinion and made it heard to the council. So that that's one of the things we figured to allow the, the honorary members to participate in the decision-making process. And the honorary membership also allows for people that want to be involved in the in the project that may not want to put money into it or may not want to be fully involved in uh, as a full member, as an active member, but that would like to offer ideas, that would like to uh, make contacts uh, with uh, other organizations, etc., etc., and that uh, that space is allowed through the honorary membership also. So talk to me a little bit now about where you see the potential of this organization going. Obviously, it's been founded to help to preserve this land in a pristine state or allow it uh the capacity to continue to regenerate in the way that nature would have normally managed it. How do you plan to expand, perhaps even acquire more land, and continue this mission of conservation and regeneration? Well, one thing that has hit me recently, I've been reading a lot about the state of the world in terms of uh, degradation of, of the environment and global warming, and it's pretty clear that we're at a key point of time where we can still avoid some of the worst catastrophes uh, that may happen if we don't act on it. My experience with this uh, reforestation project tells me that this region and this altitude has an incredible capacity for growing forest and that implies taking carbon out of the atmosphere, basically turning it into soil and keeping it there as soil. And one of the big advantages of this region is so wet that so far fire has not been an issue. Doesn't mean it may not be in the future. But this is one of the reasons why the forest can grow so lush and so quickly, the amount of humidity. Also, we're at an altitude where it doesn't hardly ever freeze. So it allows trees to keep growing year-round. And the summers are, the, the weather is pretty ideal, the temperatures, which also allows the, the trees to keep growing at, at, at their maximum potential. And so my vision, uh, in order to, to potentialize uh, this experience, is to be able to purchase more property and allow it to grow forest just as we did through the nonprofit organization. I want to allow for donations uh, from people that mm, are conscious and want to participate in the healing of the environment and of the world at large. And uh, also allow for memberships for people that want to truly be involved in, in this project. We envision uh, no permanent structures within the area that, that is protected by, by the ownership of the nonprofit. And we are testing uh, non permanent structures that can be very comfortable, akin to glamping. 
uh, on wooden platforms uh, hanging from trees where people can come and visit. People that get involved with the project that may not want to move into this region, but they want to be involved and performing a healing. And they can come and stay here for a few weeks of the year and enjoy. In this case, it would be the fruit of their labors through the conservation effort. That's, uh, I guess, succinctly the vision that, that I have of, of uh, growing this forest. Well, that is a perfect transition into some of the ways that you are raising funds to keep this going. Now, I know you have a lot of different enterprises between your house, between what you sell with the organic cooperative around here, and the gums themselves. So, tell me about some of the ways that you have found to create high-quality and ethical products with the resources around in this region. Now, when you're talking about products, you're talking also about the for-profit aspect of my activities, mm -hmm. which are also deeply interrelated with the conservation efforts. They are basically uh, a property, uh, several properties that are adjacent to the forested areas and which are also growing forest. But at the same time, we are developing uh, production systems that are fl friendly with the forest. One of them has, has been the pasturing of goats in some of the areas uh, of the forest. Uh, the goats have a lot of space to pasture and they eat what would be considered weeds. They just grow wild and they know what they like, they know what to eat, they go out every day and they go to different areas they pasture and they come back we milk the goats um, we make cheese and we sell the cheese at the farmers market that has been developing for about 15 years here in the region and that's uh, one way that we have kept the project uh, funded and also, uh, we have cows within the farm area, which we're developing some intensive pasturing systems for with electric fence. And right uh, now, uh, we are growing a coffee crop. We're starting a coffee plantation in the areas that used to be pasture. And the idea here is to combine some of the um, plants that are uh, used in the coffee plantations as shade as a source of forage for the animals. Very specifically, we're talking about banana. There's also leguminous trees and a type of sunflower, a wild variety that grows really well and it's uh, good in protein for the animals. So we're developing a system that includes all these plants and uh, can be fed to the animals. And we're using the manure of the animals to uh, make uh, biodynamic composts and feed them to the coffee and all these other plants. So there's a system going on. The animals are kept uh, confined in a small area, except for the goats and the sheep that go to pasture in the bigger area. But they, they deposit the manure where they sleep, in the barns where they sleep. And that is an excellent source of nutrition for the rest of the productive areas. Here, specifically in the productive project, 
I partnered up uh, with uh, one of the owners of the adjacent properties and uh, my brother-in-law, which purchased another adjacent property and is growing forest, uh, productive forest within it with uh, some nut trees, uh, the coffee and a lot of forestry trees. That was actually one of the reasons why I was first attracted to come to this farm is because, as most of my listeners know, uh, back at our farm in Guatemala, we had goats, we had chickens, and had kind of a, a polyculture of cultivation in a very small space. And it's been fascinating for me to see how you manage the resources on a much larger scale than we had, but have also turned some of those products into really excellent uh, value-added products, like you mentioned the cheese. Um, your family is also working on getting access to organic cacao from nearby region, turning it into very, very good chocolate. Um, what else? There's the, the butter, the ghee, the ice cream, the yogurt. Uh, we did yogurt. We did some cheeses at our place, but we never had the apparatuses or the machinery to do uh, hardened or semi-hardened cheese. And that uh, that process has been fascinating to watch. Hopefully, by the time this interview comes out, I'll also have the videos of going through all of those different steps because that was really eye-opening for me to see not only that it was accessible to do, but also the level of mastery that you can put into it if you're willing to pay attention, um, pay pay close attention really to the variables and keep detailed records until you get a really high-quality product that can be reproduced. Talk a little bit more now about this idea of non-permanent structures and how you came to the design for the gomes. Right. The non-permanent structure I was talking about are a type of tent that we developed in, in Hiko, uh, a business partner, my business partner and I. And we've been doing it for 10 years. My business partner, he did a horse carving all the way from Costa Rica throughout many years. And I met him at a rainbow gathering near Catamaco here in the state of Veracruz. And I was quite intrigued about his um, his effort of, of, of doing this riding all throughout Mexico and third world countries. I was pretty impressed. And, uh, well, I met him again at a different gathering, also in Veracruz, in Chuapas. And one day he came knocking at my door in Chico. He knew we lived here. And guess he asked around where we lived exactly. And... He asked me to go help him move his horses because he was nearby with 25 horses, only had like five riders. So I got my family together and uh, some uh, friends and we went to, to help move the horses. He had found pasture right next to a property. Somehow he figured it out, just show up, right, talk to the right people. We allowed him to pasture some of his horses in our property. And uh, he basically stayed here in Hiko for a couple of years. He rented a place and took care of his horses. Of course, at some point he was uh, hurting for money. He came and offered me some some, some uh, uh, saddlebags that he had developed. Really good quality. I was quite impressed. I had seen him at the gatherings before, and I was like, "Yes, I'll buy him." You know, these are good stuff, and paid him money. Everything good. And at some point, I, I asked him, why, why are you don't making this for selling commercially? You know, this is really good products. And so he thought about it, and, and at some point, he proposed me to go into business. He says, like, look, I don't have money. I had the experience because we've been making this for a while. 
who also made the tents and we've also made clothes because uh, that was his his thing is making his own stuff in the trip and I had a little money back then from an internet business so I said yeah that, that sounds like a good proposal I figured uh, diversifying at that point was a good idea and so I put uh, a bit of money into it and he went to buy materials in Mexico City and brought them back found uh, local sewers to start making the prototypes and basically we started selling this stuff to friends at first and the tents were one of the most um, successful products we sold some clothes we sold some saddlebags we made a website we promoted the website and he uh, he always attends uh, gatherings and events so he would go to the events and started offering our products and well they started moving a little bit you know we didn't have a big production at first we were reinvesting all the money that was coming in in fact we did for most of the time the the business the partnership has been uh, working and uh and we started perfecting the products especially the tents the gomes and uh well it's been years just improving and improving on the designs listening to clients feedback my partner he actually lives in the gomes he lives in tulum right now and and he experiences full time living in them me and my family we moved to the farm a few years ago and we lived in gomes for about six months it was one of the most wonderful experiences we could possibly start building something at our property but the truth is we're not interested in building we we prefer living in the gomes close to nature and being able to put them wherever we like and maybe change them with the seasons and well one of the most recent developments that is very attractive to us and we're also in a prototyping stage here is the wooden platforms i was mentioning those ones hung on trees my partner already did it when he lived in chiapas and he's doing it right now for glamping hotels in in mayan riviera but uh but we want to do it in the forest we want to do it in in this forest and we want to be able to offer it to like-minded people who would like to develop uh, minimal impact lifestyles. My idea of change in this world is not about getting more stuff or becoming richer or even su successful in the terms that society understands it nowadays. My vision of, of uh, improving the world is to change our lifestyle where we require less, less from from the environment, less from the world, where we do not need to spew carbon dioxide into the atmosphere from our activities or from the junk that we buy or from the work that we do for that matter. I've had experience in, in gatherings, in rainbow gatherings specifically, living out in the forest as communities, and it works. Maybe the Rainbow Gathering is not the perfect example of sustainability, 
but I believe is the most perfect example of low impact lifestyle that I've seen because you don't require much to live in the forest. Entertainment is is just part of the of the everyday lifestyle of regular activities. It's one of the most fun experiences I've had in my life. Even as a family, when we lived here in in the Gomes, I uh, my whole family remembers it as one of the most enjoyable and enduring experiences they have. They look back to this time as some of the best time in their lives. They told me my kids have told me that, and that tells me that tells me that definitely it's worth pursuing. So our plan is to do that. We're going to keep making cheese and we're going to keep making chocolate. But we want to minimize our carbon footprint and our impact in the world and just uh, learn and, and be able to develop a, a lifestyle that is, works here to, in, in the forest and be able to offer that to other people to, to teach it and to welcome people to try it out. See, in my own experience, and you and I have talked a lot about this because you've done a lot of natural building as well, and that used to be my specialty, especially when I lived back in Guatemala and was traveling more often. But I've gradually come to the conclusion that the most natural way of building isn't necessarily just with earth materials or with bamboo or any technique in particular. It's whatever the environment where you're in calls for and what's appropriate for that. And in so many cases, it's renovating existing structures or putting up temporary ones. And this is one of the first places where I've seen such uh, a positive and potentially replicable example of, a, you know, a high quality product that you can put out in nature that you can move periodically so it doesn't, you know, choke out the soil, but can also stay there for a significant period of time under quite heavy weather conditions and be very comfortable, can be altered slightly for, you know, better ventilation, can be shut up in order to keep it warmer inside, can even host a fire if you're going to be cooking in there. And I think that in most cases, especially for people like in my generation, who increasingly are moving around, uh, exploring the world, doing their sort of finding their themselves travels, we end up using so many resources in doing that, even if our own possessions and our lifestyles are kind of minimal. And I would love to see uh, a temporary structure, you know, uh, community or an option to stay like this when you're traveling around be available in much more in many more places especially when the environment around is so conducive to living close to nature and you don't need very much as far as shelter uh, during most of the year there's definitely an advantage of this uh, region the the weather is not extreme and and the, at the same time the gomes allow for comfort in even more extreme weathers we've designed them like i was explaining uh, through the suggestions of clients that live in cold weather and clients that live in hot weather so we've adapted them like as an example the original gum and we keep that feature up to date is uh, got a 360 degree ventilation it's got mosquito netting all around and at the same time you can close it with a wall made out of material the materials can change according to the client's requirement there's the lightweight materials can be packed on a a bag on your back and taken wherever they're very light 
and there's a heavier duty materials that can last uh, 10, 15 years uh, in full sun. And uh, well, it de definitely depends on the requirements of each client. We actually adapt uh, to, to the client can tell us, I need this and this and this, and we make it to their specifications. If it's for cold, for example, and even for hot, we use a double roof. We have what we call an inner roof of a lightweight material that is very visually very nice. It has a hole in the middle that can be used for the ventilation when it's hot. But the advantage is that it creates an airspace between the outer roof and this inner roof that is uh, insulates the heat when the sun hits the outer roof. At the same time, the middle hole allows for the ventilation. The gome is uh, similar to a yurt in a form, but it only requires one middle pole. We make stainless steel poles that are uh, telescopic. They, you can take them apart and carry them with you. And you can also use a bamboo pole or a, or a piece of wood, or you can hang it from a tree or any, anywhere that is above of your, of your roof. So it's very versatile. Like you mentioned, a fire can be made inside the, in the bigger models. That's how we cooked uh, when we lived with my family here. We had a small fire for when it got a little chilly, and we also cooked on it. And we ended up putting a few for different uh, things. Like an example, we had a smaller one for a bathroom. We used a, a composting uh, bucket system. And then we had one for the kitchen, and uh, that's where we had the main fire later on. And then we had a small one for equipment like tools and the horse uh, gear, etc., etc. And it worked really well. Now that the kids are grown up, now they they start having their own space, their own home. So we can be in a beautiful place. And we can live as a family and collaborate as a family. And at the same time, we don't have to be in the same spot uh, sleeping together. That worked sure. when they were smaller, of yeah, course. Yeah, privacy is necessary for sure. Yeah. Well, here, so let's uh, shift gears again a little bit. And kind of we've been building up to this point. But so much of what you and I have talked about in the short time that I've been here is about your larger philosophy of creating resilience in your life and securing some of the key resources to make sure that you can live with a peace of mind that you can provide for yourself and your family. Now, I know that this has resulted in what might even seem like counterintuitive uh, practices on the farm. I know you mentioned that keeping the animals maintained, especially as you live in town primarily, is costing you more than perhaps the food products would give you in and of themselves. But there's a larger idea behind there that there's a, there's a resilience to your life that they create. So tell me a little bit about how and why you've created the types of resilience for yourself and your family that you have. Well, most definitely. Uh, I must say that uh, the, the amount of animals that we have, we don't grow enough crops to provide for them. So yes, I have to spend money outside of the system to purchase that, that forage. And at the same time, we're developing this... Uh, coffee plantation system I was telling you about, which I hope and I expected to provide those crops in exchange for the manure that the animals provide in keeping the system stable. 
And yes, very specifically, I've decided to keep the animals because I I see the future in a way. Well, number one, I love this lifestyle. I love animals. I love making cheese. I like living out in the forest. And, and that's the number one reason. But the second reason is a sort of insurance. I don't want to depend on food that has to travel half way around the world to get to my plate. I, I don't think that's right in terms of carbon emissions and in terms of food security. It's terrible. Anytime that system gets disrupted, which I believe will happen sooner rather than later, could be a weather disaster or a financial disaster or the lack of fossil fuels or God knows what, one will be in a terrible bind to feed oneself and one's family. One is depending on the grocery store to provide for food, food for the table. So I feel that it's really basic in terms of a long-term survival. And I'm not going to say just survival, but development of a sustainable, a regenerative culture, it's absolutely necessary to have a source of protein. I mean, I don't think we could thrive on grass. Hey, some people have done it. I don't know. But I don't think I know of any culture that has just ate grass. I know that we need protein to keep ourselves healthy. At least I, I follow that diet where I minimize eating empty calories and processed food and try to maximize my input of protein and healthy fats. I feel better than I felt in the rest of my life. So I know it works. And for me, the most uh, secure source of protein is through the animals that can concentrate those proteins from plants into milk. I mean, our ancestors have done it for thousands of years. Whole cultures have And it's worth, it's worth mentioning that you're not talking so much about just drinking a lot of milk, that almost all of the products that you make, all the dairy products that you make are fermented or cultured in some way. And that at least uh, hopefully will, uh, will help with the people who are listening to this and say, oh, humans haven't uh, evolved to consume dairy products or whatnot. But I've definitely noticed a difference in how my own body and how the bodies of many other people react once it's been fermented, broken down by bacteria and kind of transformed in a way. And that's something that you've really mastered, you and your family together. I think it's very simple. The one transformation, uh, the most important that's happening is the breakdown from lactose to lactic acid. And uh, that will improve the digestibility for most people. I mean, it really depends on the intolerance to lactose that each person has. But yes, once you ferment the, the milk into yogurt and you strain the whey out, then you have a much higher concentration of protein without the lactose. Same with the fermented cheeses. We culture all our cheeses and uh, they uh, we, we expect them to have a stronger flavor than a fresh cheese, but at the same time, uh, much lower lactose content. And I must say that in specific, uh, the milk from goats 
already has a much lower lactose content than um, cow's milk for, from starters. So I maybe it's not the same for everybody. Maybe it, it wouldn't work for everybody. And there's an issue with uh, methane emissions from cows. I'm not entirely convinced yet. I believe the real problem is industrial farming. I believe that's one of the aspects that is affecting the environment in a very negative way for several reasons. And one of them is that most, um, I should say, all of the food provided for these animals come from uh, monocultures that require a high input of energy, fossil fuels, and fertilizers. And in very specific, they require uh, herbicides to, to upkeep, which also creates a whole other host of problems and i believe that having high concentration of animals is just not healthy for anybody not the animals and not the people that consume their products either certainly not if they stay in one place i know you know very well about um, holistic management and rotational grazing techniques where you can have a more concentrated number of animals on a piece of land as long as you rotate them and allow the land to actually um, descansar uh, to rest right yeah yeah, and you got to figure that the concentrations, uh, once you take into account the, the amount of area that they utilize, it's actually very small, the concentration of animals. Yeah, in feedlots, in, they're way too concentrated. Absolutely. And, and the quality of products are undesirable, I should say. Certainly. So, yes, the, going back to the resilience idea of, of, of a lifestyle... Yes, I believe that animals are an integral part of a lifestyle, especially when one does not want to depend on uh, industry and fossil fuel-derived food. And uh, in this specific environment, they seem to work well. They thrive, they grow well, they eat the, the natural forage and... Uh, and it can always be improved, of course. We're always uh, finding better ways to do things, you know. But, but the very basic aspect of it, which is foraging, that works. Yeah. Now, there's another element that I've been really impressed to see you, and this definitely to the credit of your family uh, as well, is the amount of community that you've built around the aspects of what you're doing here. Not only with the people that you've got on board, first of all, with the reforestation project, but also your participation in the organics cooperative here in the region and how well you've taken the time to get to know and participate as sort of contributors into your community. Tell me a little bit about how that has changed for you over your life, because you mentioned at first growing up in the city and making a transition into the countryside and some of the benefits that you've seen of cultivating that level of connectivity in the life around you? Well, I would say that since I've been making cheese and actually selling it at the markets, I've met more people and I'd say much closer than at any time of my life. It's just allowed to to make profound relationships with more people than I ever imagined, some of the best friends friendships I've developed have been clients at the beginning. 
There's people that I've had a relationship through the sales and I don't just sell cheese. I talk to people. I ask them. I hear their stories. Sometimes they want to hear my story. I tell them my story. And well, a lot of people think alike, you know. I think in very deep down, we all want the same thing. We all want to be healthy. We all want our families to be healthy. We all want uh, to be happy and our families to be happy. I think it actually breaks down to simple formulas. I personally believe we're being scammed by the industrial system. I think it's a, a fantasy that things are better or easier when one is uh, hooked and dependent on the industrial system. I think it's they just programmed us through education and media to believe that's the best way to live. In fact, when you think about first world countries, a lot of the culture they export has to do with that. Buy more stuff. Buy, consume more stuff, spend more energy, whether moving around or through electronics or travel abroad or whatnot. I call that mental colonization. Mm. And I'm not implying that it's only countries that are developing in that sense are uh, the victims of that colonization. No. I think it's our minds. Everybody that is connected to this system that reads media and that is being educated is being programmed to follow a lifestyle. A culture where they tell you what is success, what is right, what you should aspire to. And I, I truly believe it's a scam for the benefit of a few. They, that, that culture and that way of looking at things tends to devalue this lifestyle. I've seen it with the community of what they call poor people around here I'm not saying they don't struggle I'm not saying they haven't lived miserable lives at different times of, of their upbringing or, or their old age but I believe there's much more value in that lifestyle which is a low impact lifestyle than what is giving credit the, the people that have grown up like that, a lot of them, they look to the city as an evolution of their life. They want to move to the city, get a job, maybe get an education, consume more. But I think they're also being programmed. I think in that sense, I may have the advantage of having grown up in the city, experienced it fully, because I did. And then having the contrast of living out in the countryside and, and seeing both of them. I don't think many people have that choice in their lives. Most people grow up in the city, they stay in the city. I have plenty of friends that I grew up with. They're all in the city. They didn't move out. I and mean, they, they might have visited going ski or going to a safari or whatever. That's not the same. That's not a lifestyle. That's just a trip, a visit, 
just skim it on the surface. It's beautiful. Let's protect it. And maybe I'll donate some money into it. Maybe. That's not a lifestyle. Lifestyle is unhooking from the industrial products that we depend on to exist. And I believe nowadays there's very few people that live like that. Very few. And very few people that depend on natural systems to exist. Exist as a community or exist as a culture. I look to the indigenous cultures for inspiration on that. Indigenous cultures, they didn't industrialize. They lived in mostly in some kind of balance with the environment. And that's why they kept living for thousands of years and kept cultures, long living cultures for all that time. They were in balance with the environment. I'm sure they had terrible hardships, mostly when they get conquered. Well, there are also quite a few cultures, especially around here, like the Mayan culture itself was in decline even before the Spanish Conquisition. Um, mostly because in a lot of places where there were high population centers, they outstripped the resources available to maintain those populations. And that doesn't mean that, you know, they were going to die out completely, but oftentimes populations of humans throughout the world and throughout history have gone in sort of waves or fluctuations where they got bigger than they could sustain and then they would, you know, dip in population again. And quite frankly, I think that's going to come in a very severe way to modern culture as it is i can be awful and when you mention mayan cultures in specific well i think the proof is in the pudding mayan cultures still exist in guatemala in chiapas in yucatan people still speak their language people still dress their typical dresses and and, and clothes that they make and they have made i'm not saying it's prevalent and a lot has been lost certainly but we might be at the peak of industrial culture right now. Who knows the future? Nobody does. But it seems like that. And I must say, yes, from the indigenous cultures that we could think they were lost or they degraded the environment. Yes, their population most uh, must have reduced at some point. But the cultures weren't completely lost i think some of the last remnant of people that actually live in a balance with their environment and depend on their environment for the livelihood without destroying it are these people these indigenous people that's been one of the biggest learning experiences for me interacting and working in this region of the world is learning from those cultures and not just uh, the wisdom from before, but how they've sort of grown up and changed and in a lot of cases been degraded, but through quite a bit of quite a bit of tenacity yes. are still continuing with their traditions despite all of the influences of you know modern culture, tourism, and everything else that's encroaching on their way of life. That's uh, really tricky, and I think that also is the key is tenacity, resilience, sometimes just plain stubbornness to know what's right and follow it because yeah. the world is going a different way mostly. And most people are looking to evolving in a different manner. It's programmed into us from our birth. 
most people get separated from the mother at birth, that creates fear. It brings fear into small baby that is brought into this world. From being one with its mother to being extracted and separated from the mother into a completely new and strange world. That fear, I believe, separates us from what would be our source of energy for the rest of our lives. And the source of energy gets supplanted by money. We learn from very small child, as a very a, a small child, that things are acquired through money. Any sustenance or any product that one may like and want comes through the exchange of money. So I believe that this system is supplanting our connection with our mother, the earth, with money. On that note, before we wrap up today, can you tell our listeners how they can contact you, learn more about these projects, and perhaps even get involved? Certainly. We, you can find us at our Facebook page, which is Teyoapa, T-E-Y-O-A-P-A. And you'll see pictures of the farm, the animals, some of the family, etc., and we also have a website called teyoapa.com or .org. That's going to be the easiest way to contact us. Marvelous. Well, Jai, I can't thank you and the family enough for hosting me in this time that I've had here. I've learned so much, gained a lot of perspective, and just being able to share in the beauty of this region has been uh, indescribable. I really hope I get a chance to come back and visit and collaborate again soon. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you for being with us. All right. Take care. All right. That wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than waiting through more than 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design, philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.